Hey everyone, Paul here. We've spent the last few episodes on this podcast exploring the end of secularity, whether it was in conversations with John Verveke or Paul Vanderclay, or whether it's been in the lecture episodes exploring signs of the end of secularity in our cultural stories. This has been a primary focus. It's been on my mind over the last few months. You know, the very first episodes that I did to launch my podcast over three years ago were episodes exploring the theology of Jordan Peterson, a voice I've seen in Western culture as a sort of, if you will, prophet of the end of secularity. Not prophet in the sense that I'm um, stamping everything that he says as being prophetic, but prophet in the sense that people look to him as a voice at the end of the secular age one that is quite a very attractive voice for people who are done with secularity. They're done with the secular myth. That was the very first few episodes I ever did. It was really more of an exploration of the, the points of resonance, the points of harmony, and the points of dissonance that I saw between the preachings and teachings of Jordan Peterson and what I see as historic Orthodox Christian theology. What I want to do in this next series is to actually go through the work of Jordan Peterson's colleague, Dr. John Verveke at the University of Toronto. John's another voice I see as being a prophetic voice that people will be looking to in an ever-increasing fashion as they leave the secular frame and leave the secular story. I really believe John's work is going to be looked back on generations from now as being some of the most important of our time. And obviously, those of you that have heard my conversations with John, we've done two conversations in the past, you can see that I have a high respect for his work, and yet there's obviously points of disagreement. Those points of disagreement do not keep me from heralding this guy's work as being what I think will be viewed as some of the most important philosophical—I know he's a cognitive scientist, but he's really a philosopher, a lover of wisdom in the truest sense. I really believe people will look back at his work as being some of the most important and profound of our cultural moment. So what I want to do was to take his awakening from the Meaning Crisis lecture series, that 50-part series that he has on YouTube, and I wanted to do a theological exploration of it. I'm not promising that I'm going to go through all 50 episodes. That would be ridiculous. Boy, I bit off way more than I can chew in the Problem of Evil series that that ended up going for like a year and a half and some, I think, 17 episodes. I, I don't think I'm going to do that with John Verveke's work, but I don't know how long this will go. For me, this is, to borrow some of the terminology John likes to employ, the, it is a philia sophia, it is a hunt for wisdom, and I have been so profoundly intrigued by John's synthesis of cognitive science and philosophy and the points of resonance and harmony with what I see as being part of Christian theology that, to me, I just can't leave it alone. I keep coming back to it over and over. So what I thought I would do would be to do a public exploration of it with you together. This is a bit of a thesis. This is a bit of a theory. This is a bit experimental, sort of like the gods, wiz wizards, witches, and the end of secularity series. I've kind of come to a point. I've been doing this for three years now, and I, I'd love to share with you guys the things that I've learned from theology and philosophy that have been fairly well-established points of view to help you understand them. but. I'm also at a point now where I, I want to do a little thinking out loud. I found this to be really, really helpful in so many of the Patreon discussion forums that we have, along with uh, Zoom group discussions we've been having, that there's something happening when we mine together for nuggets of wisdom. Things emerge in that process. And I think I know that a lot of people, not I think, I know most people and probably many of you who listen regularly and maybe haven't listened to those John Verveke episodes have no idea who this, this guy is, but I'm telling you, this guy's work is extremely important and I wanted to take the time to explore it. So without further ado, this is part one of Jesus and John Verveke, 
theology, cognitive science, psychedelics, and spiritual awakening. Make sure you check out in the links provided in this description the free downloadable resources that I will have available on my Patreon page. There's some visual aids that go with this episode, so check that out on my Patreon page. You can find out more about that at the end of today's podcast. Part 1. Disrupting the Frame In part one of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, John discusses how humans are innate pattern hunters. As he illustrates with the nine-dot problem, our ability to find patterns can be limited by our framing. If you're not familiar with the nine-dot problem, the challenge of the nine-dot problem is to find a way to connect all nine dots on a board that are organized in three rows of three dots. The rules are, you've got these three rows of three dots, you have to connect all nine, but you can only use four connected straight lines. Again, this is difficult maybe to conceptualize just doing this via an audio podcast, but you can just search the nine dot problem on Google and you'll find plenty of, uh, of examples of that. The challenge of this nine-dot problem is that we have to activate our pattern hunting skills. We are coherent pattern hunters. Now, when I first tried to do this nine-dot problem, I instantly went to some sort of like square shape to try and solve the problem. It didn't work. (laughs) I was so frustrated. I tried all these different shapes. I couldn't get it to work. My ability to solve the problem was limited by previous experiences, maybe as a young pattern hunter in preschool or kindergarten, you know, those formative years where you're learning how to discern and decipher patterns. Think about maybe all the pattern recognition tests that you take, and you've probably forgotten about them already, where you have something on a piece of paper that's like, you know, green circle, red square, blue triangle, and then there's a list of other, I don't know if that's even a reasonable pattern, but there's like a fill in the blank and you have to kind of guess what comes next. I just made that one up. So I don't even know if that's a coherent pattern. Don't hold me to it. Point being, you probably remember those. And in a lot of ways, early math and language is about identifying patterns, learning how to write, learning the alphabet, learning how to discern patterns, how to employ patterns. So this is a very, very important concept that we learn very early on. We have an innate sense of looking for patterns as a way of finding meaning. The the, the really interesting thing is that when you actually see the solution to the problem, and I'm not going to try to describe it, you'll just have to maybe Google it on your own time. Once you've seen the solution to the nine dot problem, you find yourself instantly going, why didn't I think of that? Why couldn't I see that? The problem with my inability to see was that my framing of the problem, my framing limited my options. I did not have eyes to see it. I needed a disruption. I needed a disruption to my frame. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, the disciples approach Jesus and ask him why he's always speaking in parables. Quote, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. End quote. Jesus' parables act as an intentional disruption. If you cannot see the pattern, the only way to see it is via a disruption of your frame. But if you do not want to be disrupted, if you don't want your frame to be disrupted at all, then there's a certain kind of woe-to-you pronouncement from Jesus. Think about one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're a first-century Jew and you hear the story of a Jewish traveler mugged and left for dead, and two high-status religious exemplars pass him on the streets and do nothing, but yet a Samaritan, 
a Samaritan who you would have been culturally conditioned to see as a half-bred, bottom-of-the-status-ladder outsider, he stops and follows the law of God better than the religious exemplars by caring for the man, paying out of his own pocket to see him nurse his bath to health. You're going to experience this story as a disruption of your frame if you stepped into the story. Stepping into story, into narrative, has a way of altering our state of consciousness. It does so in a way that rhetoric-filled lectures, like what I'm doing right now, simply can't compete with. I think there's value to what I'm doing, otherwise I wouldn't do it. But I am not naive. There is much more room for transformative power if you watched a movie that somehow contained similar ideas than I think if you just simply listened to this rhetoric, listened to this lecture. Don't turn it off and go watch a movie. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that story does seem to have a way of changing our state of consciousness in, in a way that it's hard for rhetoric to compete with, though there is certainly value in rhetoric and lecture. We can discern implicit patterns in stories in unique ways that, to borrow another metaphor from Jonathan Haidt, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, I never know if I'm saying his name right. He has this elephant and the rider metaphor, right? The elephant and the rider metaphor is a metaphor to help us maybe understand the conscious and subconscious factors that, that drive our decisions, the way we act in the world. For hate, hate, height, gosh, I'm probably butchering his name again. <laughs> you have a rider sitting on the elephant. The rider we might think of is maybe our prefrontal cortex, the logical, rational part of our brain. And the elephant might be that, you know, more animal, reptilian part of our brain, maybe our amygdala, maybe these other more unconscious unconscious places in our mind that drive us to do things in a way that's far more powerful, carries far more weight than simply the rider that sits on the elephant's back. We have an ability via stories to discern implicit patterns, patterns that might go beyond our normal framing, in a way that calls out to the elephant a little bit more than the rider. At the core of Verveke's thesis is the belief that self-transcendence is a necessary component for attaining wisdom. We might say that for Verveke, there is a process to attaining the wisdom necessary to see the pattern beyond your immediate frame. We have to go through some sort of transformative process, right? If our framing limits our ability to see, we have to have our frame transformed, disrupted, expanded. So what I want to do using Verveke's framework and by looking for points of synthesis synthesis with Christian theology, I want to propose a path to genuine awakening, a sort of hero's journey into wisdom. At each stop in this journey, I will highlight what I believe are the potential pitfalls that can lead us into what Verveke calls foolishness, or what the New Testament authors would call in Greek harmartia, which simply means missing the mark. We know it more commonly as sin. I think there are potential pitfalls at each stop of this journey. But you can check out, I have a visual aid. It's available on my Patreon page. You can download it, check it out for free. Even if you're not a patron, that's okay. I'm going to just give this thing away. Uh, I want you to be able to see what I am attempting to describe in this podcast. So you'll be able to check that out. We can call it the proposed path to genuine awakening. You could call it the hero's journey into wisdom. You guys can let me know in the discussion forum, also on the Patreon page, what you think would be a better title for it, but you can check it out there. I've got a link in the description. So what we want to do is we want to go on a journey into wisdom, a path to genuine awakening, or if you prefer, renewal, revival, maybe even, dare I say, salvific regeneration. And we were going to highlight some of the pitfalls at each stop in the journey. I think I uh, I agree with Verveke that there are there are 
opportunities even in this sort of transcendent journey to have our biases pick up on patterns that are perhaps correlative patterns, but not causative. So there's a difference, obviously, between correlation and causation. Here's a fun one I saw on Twitter recently. A guy said, what's the dumbest beliefs you had as a child? And he said, when I was four or five, I swore that bird seeds grew birds, thus the name. When my parents asked me to prove it to them, I planted a pile of bird seeds. The next day, there were loads of birds while I planted the seeds, showing I was right. <laughs> Obviously, correlation doesn't equal causation. I may have a bit more suspicion about some of the pitfalls of transcendent journeys into uh, a potential awakening experience. And we'll talk about those as we go through each stop in this journey to genuine awakening. Those who have left the secular frame and they're optimistic about the possibility of transcendence, they're optimistic about the possibility of a genuine awakening from the meaning crisis, and they're open to spiritual spirituality, they're open to a domain of spirit, they should be cautious. And I realize that most of my regular listeners come from the Christian story inhabiting Christian community. But I also recognize that maybe some of you, um, some of you don't. I also recognize that there will be some of you that are checking out these particular episodes just because you are a fan of Raveki's work, and I want to welcome you into this podcast, into this lecture and conversation together. One of my warnings to those of you that maybe would be inhabiting that sort of none space, N-O-N-E, um, that space of perhaps being just coming from a purely, if you can say that, we've talked about this before, I don't think there's ever purely a secular frame, but those that have inhabited the secular frame and are now really, really optimistic about transcendence, awakening, spirituality, I have a word of caution. I think there is another ditch that you should be aware of. There is this other ditch, the naive assumption that all altered states of consciousness leading to a sense of transcendence are inherently good. As one obvious example, we've seen even in drug and alcohol abuse, we've seen in that epidemic, that simply pursuing a sense of transcendence, of getting outside of myself and getting a glimpse outside of the imminent frame, it doesn't guarantee the attainment of wisdom, a wisdom marked by bearing, bearing what Jesus called good fruit, right? Both Jesus and John the Baptist said, good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. As the hymnist writes, we are prone to wander. Or perhaps if Verveke wrote that hymn, he, it might say, we're prone to foolishness or we're prone to bullshit ourselves. We should be cautious of this. Simply getting a glimpse outside the imminent frame isn't enough. At the same time, we need to be aware of how an over-conservative disposition to seeing new possibilities, the limiting of our frame is also a hindrance to genuine transcendent experiences, okay? We have this, and again, I'm speaking from the Christian theological frame that I inhabit. We have these core theological values about the imminence of God and the transcendence of God, that God is near and yet God is beyond. And if we close ourselves off to beyond, we close ourselves off to repentance and metanoia. I've talked about this before. We need to be cautious of this because this was the posture of the religious leaders who were frequently on the other end of Jesus's chastisement. We need to take seriously, if we look at their negative example, we need to take seriously our capacity for foolishness a foolishness that can result from just a, uh, boy, uh, an unreverent um, exploration into transcendence, but also the foolishness that comes by thinking we see the world perfectly. That foolishness is a capacity which poses a threat to our ability to see the pattern outside of our frame. 
If we want to find the solution to the nine dot problem, we can't. We have to open ourselves up to a new way of seeing. Verveke defines foolishness as, quote, when your capacity to engage your agency is undermined and threatened by self-deception and self-destructive behavior that is a perennial threat to your cognition. So let me take you on this proposed pathway to genuine awakening, one that I believe synthesizes the best of Verveke's work with theological affirmations mined from the rich, diverse history of global, historic Christian theology. The journey begins with what we might call our normative frame. Our normative frame is the primary worldview lens we employ to interpret reality. It's shaped by the unique interplay between our inherited personality predispositions, cognitive strengths and limitations, and other genetic factors, along with the learned programming of the culture or cultures, I should say, that we inhabit. We have to recognize that we have evolved because we've adapted to survive so well as a species. Adaptation is our strength, and and you can't continue on as a species if you don't survive. So we've learned how to survive fairly well as, the, as a species. It's safe to say that much of our conscious and unconscious energy is devoted to simply surviving. When I was mowing the lawn a couple weeks ago, there was a snake in the grass. I saw that snake, and you know, this is really the first time we've just moved. It's the first time I've ever lived someplace where there are snakes in our yard. Don't tell my wife. She is far more concerned about snakes than I am. But what I found myself doing in the days that followed is when I walked around, if I saw something moving in the grass, even if just blades of grass, even though I wasn't consciously focusing my energy on looking at the blades of grass, something, whether it's even just a leaf moving, or in some cases, a popsicle wrapper that my kids have left out for the one billionth time in the yard, I see that and instantly, instantly, I am alarmed to the possibility that it's a snake. Even though we just have gardener snakes, our species has survived in large part because we learned how to stay away from snakes. So much of our conscious and unconscious energy in our normative frame is devoted simply to surviving. We can't easily escape that part of our genetic programming. But again, we are not just programmed by our genetics. We are also psychologically programmed by the cultures we inhabit, both the macro and micro cultures. We spent up quite a bit of time talking about that in the Mind Software episodes, the Christ and Culture series. Theology and culture has been a major point of emphasis throughout the past three plus years of doing this podcast. We know that culture transmits guiding stories, transmits values, uh, aesthetic preferences, social norms, rituals, etc. It transmits these things and programs us deep in our psyche in ways that we're not always consciously aware of. In fact, most of the time, we probably aren't consciously aware of the levels of programming that culture has on our way of thinking and seeing the world. These factors set the bounds of our normative frame, and they program, to use another Verveke term, our salience landscapes. Again, what becomes salient to us is limited by the boundaries we set. Those are our salience landscapes. We look across those landscapes to determine what's salient. We can't look across everything everywhere. Our frame cannot be infinite. Boundaries are a cognitive necessity. To scoff at the idea that we need framing boundaries reflects a deeply American value, a very strong sense of hyper-individualism. Now, I don't think individualism in and of itself is bad. Of course, when we start talking about the domain of values, we have to have some sort of referential point, some judge to judge these values, and we can't get into all that now. But I will say is this. In its extreme forms, hyper-individualism transmits narratives that lead people to believe that all boundaries are oppressive. As an American, I confess, I have an instinctive, guttural response to any notions of boundaries. I don't like hearing it on my first 
um, my first reaction. But as Verveke highlights, without framing boundaries to our salience landscape, the amount of data in the world that we'd, we have to take in is combinatorially explosive. That means we can't do the calculations. There is too much input. We are simply unable to find the relevant needle in the towering information haystack. The options are overwhelming. Constriction of possibility is necessary. It is not inherently oppressive. Our finitude is a gift. We all operate with an ever-changing normative frame. The problem with our normative frame is when the frame constricts the possibilities to a point in which our salience landscape excludes us from seeing the coherent pattern. Think again of the nine-dot problem. If I can't solve the problem, it's not because my frame has boundaries. It's because the boundaries of my frame excluded the solution. Can you see the difference there? I, can't, I couldn't solve the nine-dot problem, not because I had boundaries in and of themselves. It's because the boundaries of my frame just excluded the solution. So what I needed was a new way of seeing. I needed metanoia. Metanoia is the Greek word in the New Testament for repentance. The word repentance may have a lot of cultural baggage. I get it. A lot of cultural baggage associated with the sort of like turn or burn tent revival preaching. But the Greek word literally means a change of mind. Obviously, a changing of the mind alone does not equate with a genuine spiritual awakening, or to use a more traditional theological phrase, it does not automatically equate to regeneration or being born again. But Jesus and John Verveke agree on this point. There can be no genuine enlightenment, no participatory union with ultimate reality without metanoia, okay? Metanoia does not guarantee it, but you can't have it without metanoia. You can't. You have to have your frame expanded, disrupted. You have to have a change of mind. So how do we see things in a new way? How do we have a change of mind when our normative frame constricts us from seeing the solutions to the nine-dot problems of life? Somehow our normative frame has to be disrupted and expanded. We'll need some sort of trigger to alter our state of consciousness. Instead of using the word trigger with all its own cultural baggages, let's, let's call these experiences doorway events. An aesthetic experience, a ritual like prayer or singing, hypnosis, sleep, fasting, sex, an activity that induces the flow state, ingesting mind-altering substances ranging from a delicious or disgusting food all the way to psychedelic drugs. All of these are doorway events to altered states of consciousness. Now, Christians and others in traditional religions, they might get a little squeamy. They might get a little uneasy at the mention of prayer alongside a list of activities that include hypnosis and LSD. I get it. My intention in doing so, I'm not bringing those up in a list together to make a judgment as to the efficacy of each of these doorway events in leading to genuine repentance and union with God. I'm not doing that. I'm bringing them together as doorway events to simply acknowledge what cognitive science and pretty much any anecdotal report of someone who's experienced a transformative life change, whether that was in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it was at a Billy Graham crusade, this is what all of them will tell you. You have to have an experience like this to disrupt and shift the normative frame of our baseline conscious experience. These are events that alter our states of consciousness. Now, to experience an altered state of consciousness, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It just is. I'd contend that the value judgment of good, bad, right, wrong applied to an altered state of consciousness 
that gets determined by the telos to which the state altered state of consciousness is aimed, or to put it another way, using again the words of Jesus recorded in Luke 7, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. For those of you that have grown up Christian and, and participate regularly in Christian worship, let me just give you one example of this. Think about the times in which maybe you've said uh, you've gone into worship and um, in the worship service, the music was profoundly beautiful. The hymns that were sung were not just theologically sound, but they, they were an invitation for you to step out of yourself and to sing them with all your heart. Or for those of you that spent time like me growing up in Pentecostal and charismatic context, you would use words like anointed, right? Or you, you felt the Spirit of God on it. You felt enraptured. You felt that you tasted the glory. All these different words to describe what? Describe an altered state of conscious experience. I'm not saying it's just that, but what I am saying as a Christian that's not a Gnostic is all of our spiritual experiences are mediated through our bodies, <laughs> through our brains. We are embodied, living creatures made in the image of God. We do not have spiritual experiences in some sort of like separate spiritual antenna system that's like non-material. These are all mediated through our bodies, through our brains. We do not have them divorced from that. So what I am saying is that that's that time of worship, think about how much more, if you had this really profound time of singing in worship or maybe even dancing, right? And those of you in the Pentecostal and charismatic streams, especially Pentecostal, Pentecostals dance a lot more than charismatics do. Um, but you had this like, just profound flow state experience. I mean, we would even say without having any idea of cognitive science at all, we'd talk about, man, we were in the flow. I, you know, I played on a record years ago as a guitarist, like filled with lots of spontaneous songs and um, it was called Caught in the Flow. And we weren't, we weren't talking about cognitive science terms like flow state. That was just kind of the language we had to describe the feeling. But it was a flow state experience that was altering our state of consciousness. Think about those times and how much more receptive you were to the sermon that day, how it changed the quality of the experience with weeks in which perhaps the music wasn't good or you didn't sing, you didn't step outside of yourself. The problem is in those cases, you weren't disrupted. <laughs> Even if it was like, you know, the music was really bad, you could have been disrupted in a different way. But your frame wasn't expanded. You were staying in the normative frame. And that's why, just again, speaking anecdotally about Christian worship, the worship services where these two come together, the singing, the liturgy, the arts, the, 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 the visuals of the room, the, perhaps even just the beauty of the cathedral you're worshiping in if you're not in like a low church experience, right? All of these things play a role in your changing of your frame. And that changing of the frame makes it more, makes you more likely to be able to hear perhaps something that calls you into repentance in a sermon. There's a reason why, especially in, you know, kind of more evangelical context, pastors that are doing the preaching. They don't, they want to have the music up front. And it's not just because they want like the band to be the warm up. They would say things, I've talked to preachers about this. They would say things like, well, I feel like it prepares people's hearts for the sermon. Huh. It's a really interesting expression. It's, it's a metaphorical expression to say that, which I think is actually the cognitive sciences are revealing is that this is actually altering our state of consciousness. So altering a state of consciousness is not bad or good. It just is. It's the telos of that altered state of consciousness, which I think we, we would have to judge. So once we've stepped through that doorway event and we have an altered state of consciousness, the next potential stop in our journey, and it can stop right there. We don't need to continue on. That could be the end of it, and oftentimes it is. There's no metanoia, no awakening. But the next stop 
on our journey towards genuine spiritual awakening is what Verveke and others call self-transcendence. In psychological terms, self-transcendence refers to the experiential realization that there is more beyond the self and a relating to that which is greater than the self. Abraham Maslow, maybe most, many of you guys have probably heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You've probably seen that pyramid, um, that the hierarchy of needs pyramid. In the 1950s, Maslow began to believe that self-transcendence was actually beyond the top tier, that self-actualization tier in his hierarchy of needs formulation. He started to feel like his hierarchy of needs and self-actualization being at the very top really focused too much on uh, the sort of individualism that our culture, hyper-individualism our culture affirms. And so for Maslow, he thought, he started, he believed there was another tier beyond that, the self-transcendence. The individual must transcend their own self-interests and concerns and begin to see the wider whole and start working for the good of all. I'd contend that once we've made it up to this level in our journey, we've moved beyond simply an altered state of consciousness, we'd go deeper higher, you know, you can use all of these different spatial metaphors, and it's hard to describe why we use these spatial metaphors, but if you've experienced them, you know what I'm talking about. There's a deeper, there's a higher, there's a leveling up. Once we've gotten to this level in our journey, I, th- I believe we are now entering into a more unfiltered domain of what has traditionally been called the spiritual I believe it was this domain that Plato was reaching for in his idea of the realm of forms. Uh, If I would draw upon the language of Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, as another example of someone grasping for the right words to describe this domain, I believe Plotinus might suggest, uh, I think he believed that it was at this point, this point of self-transcendence, once we've gone over that wall, we begin to level up from simply altered states of consciousness and and, and into self-transcendence and beyond that, that's when we begin moving from the sense world or the physical domain into the domain of what Plotinus and and other Platonists and Neoplatonists would call the world soul. I've also included a diagram. I I will include a diagram for that on the Patreon page as well, so you can kind of see the the three hypostases of um, Neoplatinus's system. This is the space that in the ancient Hebrew tradition, this would be the space that the angels inhabit. Now, the Hebrew word for angel is malach, and all that means is messenger. I like to think about the picture of Jacob's dream as he, as he lied asleep after wrestling the angel of the Lord or some sort of theophany of God. That as he lied on the rock that night, there were messengers ascending and descending from this domain of heaven. It's an interesting picture that you can imagine in the book of Genesis. This is the space of the messengers. This is the space of the angelic messengers. This is not just something that, again, Christians or in Greek philosophy, you also had the ancient Greeks in not just philosophy, but in their mythology, they had their daemons, D-A-E-M-O-N-S. That's actually, of course, where we get the word demons from. The daemons were intermediary agencies between humans and gods. You had daemons of emotion, like Achis, daemon of anguish, and Eros, the daemon of love. Daemons of ideal values and virtues also existed, like Charis, the, the daemon of grace, or Pistis of trust. Those are also very interesting words if you know you're a bit of New Testament Greek. Charis and Pistis. Pistis is what's often translated as faith. So that's very interesting. We see this in we see this in Greek mythology that there was these daemons that actually kind of transmitted values. What an interesting concept. <laughs> it's something we've talked about before with the work of Dwight Hopkins and spirit, aesthetic, and labor, this domain of spirit, and drawing upon his work to describe a, 
a realm of transcendent ideals and values. It's not just there. In Islam, there's the jinn, right? D-J-I-N, or sometimes spelled J-I-N-N. Uh, so what we're talking about here is, I believe, once we move beyond this low, this wall of self-transcendence and we relate to something beyond ourselves, we start to breach an area in boy, what could we call this? In the cosmos, not just talking physically, in the created order that uh, is the domain of revelation, not the book of revelation, (laughs) the domain of that spark of revelation, the domain of the Malak messengers. And yet it is also a space that Christians have long held to is full of the possibility of deception. There are deceptive and oppressive spiritual agencies that would later be called demons in the Christian tradition, borrowing from that Greek word daemon. I'd also contend, this is my own personal opinion, that this is the domain of Asgard in Norse mythology, home of Thor and Loki. This is the realm of Mount Olympus and the Olympian gods like Zeus and Mars. Now, am I saying that Zeus or Odin, Mars, Loki, and even the Greek, the Greek daemons are all real? Well, what do you mean by real? At the very least, there is certainly variety of description about the spiritual domain across religious traditions and mythologies, but there is enough similarity across time and culture to suggest to me that these mythological domains like Olympus and Asgard, along with the sort of mythological agencies that exist in this domain, like Thor or Apollo, are at the very least an effort to give language to experiences which certainly seem incredibly real to those who've experienced them. Now, again, am I saying like Thor is real? Again, what do you mean by that? Are people actually having real spiritual experiences with possible spiritual agencies in a domain of consciousness that transcends our normal frame? Yes, I think they are. As a Christian, I join in with the vast majority of Christian theologians from the past who affirm the existence of spirits the existence of functional and dysfunctional spirits or spiritual agents, messengers of God who orient us towards the truth and oppressive spiritual powers who, to quote Jesus again, seek to steal, kill, and destroy. Now it's at this point we need to talk a little bit about psychedelics. We need to talk about hallucinogenics, We need to talk about substances that have a profound impact on altering states of consciousness in pretty radical ways, ways that are maybe only comparable to some of the most profound religious experiences or dreams in altered states of consciousness. I believe that people who take what is sometimes dubbed heroic doses of psychoactive substances like psilocybin or DMT often have such deeply altered states of consciousness that they do enter into greater conscious connection with this spiritual domain beyond the wall of self-transcendence. Many people report feeling a profound sense of spiritual transcendence, encounter with God, but Also, there are reports of encounters with other entities, as some people call them. Some call them the DMT aliens or DMT elves. Others simply call them beings or guides. A recent survey of 2,561 people who had taken DMT reported in the Journal of Psychopharmacology showed that 56% of those people, so more than half, felt they had encountered an entity during their psychedelic trip. 81% of those surveyed said that the experience was more real than everyday waking consciousness. 
And 96% of respondents, of those 56% who said they encountered an entity, said that they believed the entities they encountered were conscious beings themselves. Now, I accept the possibility that these psychedelic experiences could be nothing more than illusory hallucinations. That's very much on the table for me. And yet, as someone with a deep history in charismatic and Pentecostal expressions of Christian spirituality, I can't deny the points of similarity between reported psychedelic experiences and the spiritual, quote-unquote, prophetic experiences of ecstatic visions and dreams one might hear reports of, or dare even experience themselves in those contexts. I've experienced them. Um, I can share stories. I don't, won't use, do so today, maybe in another episode of this part, but I can share stories about profound prophetic dreams I've had, dreams that have revealed future events in vivid detail, events that I should have no knowledge of whatsoever, that I should have no conscious awareness of whatsoever that have been spot on and accurate, and it's freaked me out, okay? (laughs) So I can't deny the points of similarity, Nor can I deny the points of resonance with some of the visions of heaven or the spiritual domain recorded in the Bible in places like Ezekiel, Isaiah 6, and the book of Revelation. In fact, research done at Johns Hopkins University demonstrates that in many cases, traditional religious experiences that we might say moved beyond the veil of self-transcendence and psychedelic experiences produced lasting positive effects in a person's life well after the experiment. So I am not closed to the positive possibility of substances that we ingest so radically altering our state of consciousness that it brings us into a place of more conscious awareness of the good, of God, of even the malak, the, the, the positive angelic messengers and the revelation that we can experience in that state. I'm not denying that. I'm certainly not denying what seems to be really promising medicinal benefits either for those with anxiety, depression, those in end-of-life situations. There seems to be some really promising research. This is not me pounding the pulpit, okay? Yet, I also am concerned by the disturbing reports. I th- there are disturbing reports from the psycho not journey, which should give us pause. And again, I I want to be clear, I'm not just talking about singular bad trips, as some people call them, but rather those experiences that long-term serious psychonauts like my friend Paul Reese, who uh, I interviewed back in episode 58, if you did not listen to that one, go back and listen to episode 58 with Paul Reese after you get done listening to this. Paul was a very, very experienced psychonaut tried just about everything and did so for a very, very long time. He went about as deep into these places as I've heard anybody go, okay? So there are people like Paul who report having these sorts of dark spiritual bait and switch (laughs) uh, situations that happen the deeper you go into these experiences. Paul's own experience led him to being frequently tormented by several entities that he now considers demons. And again, you can listen to those. I would not want those experiences. Um, This is beyond the sort of thing that some people say, well, that's what you have to do to go through the ego death. And once you have the death of ego, that self-transcendence, you recognize the higher power. And I realize that might be the case for some, but I also realize that for others, there is lasting, dark, oppressive entities that they encounter. Um, One such such self-reported psychonaut in the online DMT journal, uh, there's an online DMT journal out there. (laughs) If you ever want to have some interesting reads, I'll see if I can find the link again to it. And uh, if I remember, note to self here, I'll post it in the the links in the description. One self-reported psychonaut in the online DMT journal claims to have experiences with entities who initially communicated joint positivity, but then eventually demanded participation in like odd religious rituals. Um, there was manipulative 
demanding gestures of loyalty and obedience to them that they started requiring the deeper he went in these experiences and a and a range of other oppressive experiences that reek of the truly demonic. Now, I want to talk about a little bit of what I perceive to be a point of more general disagreement with John Verveke on shamanic practices. I know John is actually very, in some ways, expresses serious concern about the psychedelic resurgence. Um, he has been largely positive about the role of shamans and shamanic practices in the evolution of human culture. Uh, and I'm, I'm not denying the historical evidence for that. While Verveke tends to be more positive about shamanic practices, the religious rituals of many ancient civilizations, if we were to look at them, and I taught ancient history for years as well, they should cast some doubt on whether simply transcending the self and then relating to any power beyond ourselves is for our good. So what happens if you do that? What happens if through a shamanic practice, whether that's with the assistance of some substance or not, if it's more, I guess we don't want to say naturally occurring because in psilocybin is naturally occurring too. Um, I don't know a better way of describing it would just say without the assistance of ingesting chemicals or inhaling something that would cause a chemical change state in our brain. If we look at ancient civilizations, we need to take a serious account of what happens if we move beyond the wall of self-transcendence. We connect to a power beyond ourselves. But what if the power beyond ourselves that we connect with asks for self-mutilation, sexual abuse, or worst of all, human sacrifice? Take the ayahuasca ingesting Aztec religious beliefs. Once upon a time, historians were skeptical of the Spanish accounts that detailed the alleged ritual of human sacrifice among the Aztec people. You know, maybe that was just some sort of narrative colonial powers needed to justify that the people they were conquering were a dangerous threat. But the archaeological evidence that's been uncovered proved that the Spanish colonists were not making that stuff up. Now, what could possibly possess the imagination of a people in such a way to lead them to believe that a power beyond them, a power beyond the self, demanded human blood? We have got to take this seriously. I see, and I don't want to get pulpit pounding, but this is a point of genuine concern for me. It is very, very trendy right now for what we might say as predominantly white, but upwardly mobile people in Western culture, especially here in the U.S., for them to spend a lot of money taking a trip, flying down to the Amazon, the very places in the world where human sacrifice happened to meet with a shaman to ingest ayahuasca. And again, as we talked about in the gods, wizards, witches, in the end of secularity series, we can see in our cultural stories a growing openness to magic. And I think in a lot of ways that's good because that I think there's, in doing so, there's a greater adherence to reality as it is, at least more so than what the secular frame presents. We have to have that frame disrupted. But we think about people flying down to meet with a shaman to ingest ayahuasca. And again, largely, you know, affluent post-secular age spiritual seekers to connect with a higher power beyond them. I do think there should be at least some pause to consider why in the world the ayahuasca drinking Aztecs somehow got a wild idea that, this high, that the higher power they connected with demanded human sacrifice, demanded human blood, demanded that people's hearts be ripped out of their chest. Again, I think we should have um, maybe a little bit more discernment and learn from other cultures outside of our quote-unquote enlightened West that would tell us, you know what? Not every spiritual power you encounter is out for your good. That isn't to say, as a blanket dismissal, that ayahuasca is inherently evil. I am just saying we should tread very carefully as we 
non-Western people are largely uninitiated and have very little familiarity with what exists beyond the wall of self-transcendence. And the Aztecs are not alone in this. We know the Aztecs' neighbors, the Mayans, performed human sacrifice too, and they were known for ingesting psychedelic mushrooms. Does psychedelic mushrooms make you violent? Typically not. But this should give us pause, at least some sort of pause, to think about how particular religious rituals and shamanistic um, practices don't automatically lead to wisdom, to genuine spiritual awakening that produces fruits in keeping with metanoia. Now, again, many other civilizations had religious rituals that involved human sacrifice too. It's not just the Aztecs and the Mayans. The ancient city of Ur in modern-day Iraq, the city that Abraham was called out of. Again, according to like some Jewish legends, Abraham's own father was an idol maker. And I we can't confirm or deny that. But it's interesting to me that that's what Abraham was called out of. He was called out of a city that practiced human sacrifice. And part of his testing was uh, a call that he would have been very comfortable with to sacrifice his son. And God differentiates himself from the pagan neighbor's gods by saying, you know what, you don't have to sacrifice your son. I'm glad you were willing to do what you know, what your cultural context would have been a normative act of worship. But that's not how I operate. We don't know, as we look at a place like Ur, whether or not psychedelics of any kind were used. And it's somewhat of a moot point for now. I'm not trying to make a case for psychedelics being inherently good or bad. The point I'm trying to make is that shamanistic rituals of all kinds can produce self-transcendent states. But to simply transcend self-interest and find connection with a higher power does not mean that the power that is beyond you is automatically for your good or for anyone else's good, for that matter. There's a reason why, not just in Christianity, but in every major traditional religion, there has been a reluctant suspicion, if not a flat-out prohibition, on hallucinogenic drugs and spiritual practice and worship. And I haven't even begun to unpack all the various practices of ritualistic sex and sacred prostitution that took place in ancient Near Eastern, um, in the ancient Near Eastern neighbors of, of Israel, for example. I focused on human sacrifice instead because, honestly, outside of traditional religious structures, there's very little agreement on what bounds there should be for sexual ethics in our culture. I think we generally, everybody would have a a pretty strong negative reaction to human sacrifice, but they might not for sacred prostitution or for ritualistic sex. That might actually sound like something that's really appealing to people in our culture. You know, it might seem that right now in our culture, the, the ethical boundaries or what sets our ethical, our sexual ethic is simply this concept of consent. And if that's the case, I do think, you know, there are... Um, certainly strong questions as to to what degree sacred prostitutes throughout the ancient Near East were consenting to it or whether their experience was tantamount to sexual slavery. Now, this is up for debate among historians. The point is that entering through a doorway event into an altered state of consciousness and experiencing self-transcendence is not automatically a positive awakening. Now, from my Christian framework, and again, acknowledging a frame is not bad. We all have to have a frame. We have to have boundaries. If I'm wrong, hopefully my boundaries will expand. But in my current framework, from a Christian perspective, I would say that all genuine awakening, regeneration, renewal, or spiritual transformation begins with an invitation of grace. This is part of core Christian theology. It is by grace, through faith. (laughs) It is an invitation of grace. It is a beckoning from the Holy Spirit. At their best, Christian spiritual formation practices and disciplines are not about forcefully breaching the walls of heaven. I've seen some of these, and in a lot of ways, they look a lot more like the pagan priests that Elijah battled on Mount Carmel who are cutting themselves and screaming. I've seen this in Christian worship. 
and I think a holistic, biblically informed Christian contemplative mysticism is about focusing on responding to the initiation of grace. The old Christian mystics, the the praying grandmas in church basements will tell you about the practice of what they might call waiting on the Lord. The participatory union with God that we long for, that we're made for, that I believe is the centerpiece of salvation. It is what Jesus in John's gospel defined as eternal life in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. This is eternal life that they would know the Father. Later he goes on and prays that we would be one even as he and the Father are one in a hypostatic union. It is a very real ontological participatory union. The participatory union, I believe, is an act of consensual love not rape. And you actually see this marital union paradigm, this picture throughout the biblical literature. It's one of the primary themes of the biblical literature. God portrayed as a bridegroom and his people as the bride. Again, this gets at Verveke's participatory knowing. We'll have to unpack that another time. But I think there should be a holy reverence we carry as we enter into the halls of heaven. There's a sacredness there. There's a, there's a responding to grace. And I, I, I believe that at each point in our journey, the mode of being in which we engage with the next level largely determines whether or not we will continue on a positive journey towards genuine transformation, towards what I would claim is salvific union with God or spiritual renewal, or whether or not we are heading into foolishness, deception, oppression, or bullshit. (laughs) We would be wise as we move gradually into a post-secular age to perhaps consider what the ancients and many other non-Western cultures still believe, and that is there is white magic and black magic out there angels and demons, the the Holy Spirit, and the wicked prince of this age. In our next episode, we'll continue onward to the next destination in our authentic journey of spiritual awakening, the hero's quest for wisdom. We'll explore what Verveke and others like L.A. Paul consider as a special subset of transcendent experiences. These are the mystical experiences that lead to metanoia. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. This podcast is made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you on Patreon. Patreon is the place where not only you can support this podcast, but you can get connected with me and others in a journey (laughs) towards I think authentic, genuine spiritual awakening to transformation, to helping us see that theology is everywhere. So there's fun opportunities for us to expand our normative frame together, and uh, there will be no psychedelics required. You could participate in the discussion forum for this episode. Uh, We've been doing this for maybe the past year or so, having discussion forums on Patreon where you can not only just leave your feedback for me and the things you liked or learned or disliked, the objections that you have, but you can also have fruitful exchange with other people that have been listening from around the world who are also interested in this same sort of hunt for wisdom, this philia, Sophia. We also do a monthly Zoom call for those in groups Theology 201 or higher. It's an opportunity to have discussion together about some of the things that maybe came up in the podcast or other things you might be reading or listening to. These have been such tremendously fruitful conversations together uh, with people from all over the country and I believe even some in Canada as well. So you can find out more about that on my Patreon page as well. Link is available in the description. Make sure you go over there to check out the resources that I'll be providing for this episode, go over and feel free to check out John Verbeke's work on his YouTube channel. Maybe listen to that part one of his Awakening from Meaning Crisis. Much of my 
material today was engaging with part one and two of that series. And two final requests. One, if you have other questions, concerns, comments, objections, you're not quite ready to connect on Patreon, you can reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram as well. I provide a link for my Twitter feed or my Twitter account in the description as well. And finally, uh, if this podcast is valuable to you, would you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? It helps other people discover it. It improves the algorithmic chances that someone else who's interested in this sort of stuff might uncover it. So thanks for considering doing that as well. Oh, and I accidentally lied. One final thing, I wanna give a special thanks to those in the Theology 201 groups and higher, those who have been supporting with generosity this podcast. People like Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Taylor S, Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.